On top of the hill stood three houses, standing lifeless. The middle and right-hand properties still looked habitable, except for the overgrown ferns which had by now swallowed the brittle framework of the wooden fences. But the third house set farther away from the others on its own, brought a new sense of fear, to all but one member of the group at least. That's nothing compared to what's inside, Phil said solemnly, smiling to himself as he flicked his lighter open. The others said nothing, staring silently at the old Courtney place. For Kerry, the magic felt as if it had just died. Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of Dead Men Talk. Um, looking out the window I can definitely say that, uh, I said it last week, summer is gone, autumn is most definitely here and i got to say my favourite month of the year probably, apart from December maybe, but uh, it's finally October which means Halloween is on its way um, and don't we know it, my... Uh, my two children actually almost live for Halloween, particularly my little boy. He's actually been planning, decorating the house probably since about Easter. <laughs> so, so he's um, he's really excited. It feels autumnal. It feels seasonal. It's uh, yeah, definitely the time to you know get warm inside, lights low. Either before you stick on the Christmas films, listen. Or read something slightly creepy, which is uh, hopefully why you joined today to um, just hear my recount of the next stage in um, what has become a necessary end. So I've already talked about Omidia, I've already talked about Trekker Jack, which were the first two stories I wrote outside of the World of More Apocalypse. Um, obviously I had Acolyte published and then I, I moved on to try and try my hand at short stories they they weren't overly short but they were independent stories that I really felt had a place somewhere so at the time that I had Umidia I had Trucker Jack um, I'd released them both for free on my blog um, and didn't really know what else to do with them I knew I wanted to package them together and one thing I also knew is that I knew I wanted to use the title House of Courtney somewhere. I'd had the the title House of Courtney had, had come to me while I was writing Acolyte and I even I created an email address around it. Um, I was even toying with the idea of, you know, if I had a band one day, I still had this notion of, of getting to music at some point. Um, they would be called House of Courtney. I just thought the phrase was really cool. had no idea what it would become. Um, House of Courtney, if you Google it, is actually something. It's got its own Wikipedia page, but it's not my book, unfortunately. It's, uh, it's referred to the like the nobility, the noble line of the Courtneys, um, you know, back in history. But my House of Courtney was going to be something altogether a little different. It was going to be my... I had an image, I suppose, after reading, uh, after writing, sorry, Midia and, and Trickerjack, um, 
I I do like creepy ghost stories and ones that have a setting which tell a lot of the tale or that 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 tie together different stories. This is where I was starting to play with the idea of having like an anthology um, book that was tied together with a common thread in some way. I never grew up watching things like Tales, Tales of the Crypts um, or anything like that. I grew up watching the X-Files. So it's similar in a way. That episodic um, anthology sort of genre. But um, House of Courtney in the early days after it was released, a lot of people did actually compare it to that kind of feel, like Tales of the Crypt. It was it was standalone stories, but they, they were told together under... Um, under a, a, another narrative so I I made moves with Trucker Jack and um, Umidia to put them together to release them and I had them, I, I would release I, I knew I'd release them under the banner House of Courtney because I thought it was a cool name um, this is where I first started discovering Fiverr.com for the great like graphic artists the great services that are on there for anyone out there who does anything, I might have said it before. Anything, anyone who's got a business of their own, they want something, or they they're in the creatives, they're writers or or filmmakers, podcasters, and you're just after that little something, whether it is a book cover, an advert, um, a, a Facebook banner, trailer, you know that kind of thing. Fiverr, and if you're on a slightly tight budget like I was, still am. Fiverr.com is great because there's guys on there that I've met that have produced some fantastic work for me and at great prices as well but you know they're not paying me to say that that's just from my experience i discovered fiverr.com around about that time because i wanted a cover obviously i it was going to be my first self-published work you know i had acolyte with a publisher i'd found out um around that time about create space as it was then the amazon platform for self-publishing um so i tried my hand at it i uh, so i went to fiverr um found a designer who was gonna i was gonna work with um they basically said that i could pick like a stock image as the the basis of the cover and they would base it around that and i found this image obviously i i looked for creepy houses that's that's really obviously what i wanted I've been very inspired by covers by the guys uh, like Dean Koontz, for example. One, of The first book of Dean Koontz's that I picked up and read was Odd Apocalypse, which was odd in a sense because it's actually the fifth instalment of the, the Odd Thomas series. I, I had no idea what it was, but I was drawn to the cover. It had a like a barn or a house in, in the middle of this barren land, like moorland, and it, I think it had a guy at the bottom of the the image which is like looking ahead down this path and you can see down ahead this house in the, in the wilderness that was the kind of image I wanted just a house being the focal point but the image that it was creepy it's in the middle of nowhere there's something dark um, so I picked the image we had the cover and I initially was just going to release it as quite a short book uh, shorter than it actually turned out to be it was going to have Tricker Jack, it was going to have a media, I was going to tie them together with a with something, I didn't quite know what um, but my wife said, I mean the, the, the image I chose had the house and it had a, a white chair in the 
uh, in the picture, like in in the what would be the garden, I suppose, the land around the house. And I hadn't it hadn't occurred to me that that had to have some relevance. To me, it was just a really cool image. But she was the one that said to me that I needed to make that because it was quite a prominent part of the picture this chair I needed to make that relevant so what came next was the third story which made up the the trilogy that, that went into House of Courtney um, which was The Killing Floor now I had to go back and revisit this story before doing this podcast there's one reason why I'm a little I'm a few days later than normal sort of releasing this because this is a story that I not really overly connected to and I think one of the reasons for that is because this is as close as I got to writing to a brief um, again I was very early on in my writing journey anyway um, but I I realised that I, I wrote better all my ideas were coming quite fluidly I didn't plan I didn't write to plans or anything so this was the first time that I had to start I had to purposefully write a story to tie in with something um, and what came out of it was I mean now I've gone back over it I forget really how fond I am of this story because it's, it's one that I, I wrote to to make the image uh, or the cover fit the book it's probably the worst thing to do as a writer a lot of writers probably will think that's sacrilege you know not writing the story because you want to because because you've got any other reason probably the, the the most cliche thing is is making the cover fit or making the story fit the cover but that was that's completely what i did with this i will hold my hands up very honest um i had no originally i had no drive to write this story at all other than i needed to make this one feature on the cover sound relevant so i had to write a story and what I came up with this story really had very little this this chair does factor into it it is explained but it's it's quite a minor detail I started off with the idea that the chair or that the house had a history that's what I wanted because I wanted the house to really be telling the story and if you if you go back if anyone has um, has read House of Courtney before I then repackaged it um you have the three stories you have Amidia you have Trick and Jack you have The Killing Floor and they are tied together by this this sort of narrative voice which is actually the house welcoming the reader to the house and it's giving them like a, a little guided tour and each of these stories are tied to the house so my, my next challenge then was to take Trick and Jack I'll explain this at the end but take Trick and Jack and make that tie in with with this one with with the house because at the time it was a real standalone story and the killing floor is actually the one that ties Umidia and Trickerjack together I won't give away too much again this isn't um, the podcast isn't here for me to give spoilers or tell everyone what the stories are I want people to go out and read them um, but you would probably have to read the killing floor and Trickerjack together in the house of Courtney for anyone who has a copy of it or has read a copy of it um, it's no longer in print unfortunately but anyone who who has read it will probably know what I mean when I repackaged them for a necessary end the narrative of the house wasn't there I I wrote a completely new story to tie in this story, the, the individual short stories that go into a necessary end so this narrative of the house really only exists in the book House of Courtney 
So some of what I'll say probably for anyone who reads necessary end, this probably be news to you. But I think this is just one of the the, the quirky sort of. This is the reason I I wanted to do this podcast to tell people the stories behind my stories, how they came to be, even if they don't exist in that form now. You ever heard the tale of Eleanor Briggs? Phil asked. Faye shook her head, feeling her hands and knees trembling. Just the cold, she reasoned, as she let herself drop into Gareth's embrace. Carrie and Gareth urged Phil to tell his story, and Faye felt a drop in her stomach when he declined. She had never physically felt disappointment before, but she recognized it now. The house had secrets, and something told her that Phil knew them all. So what I was starting off by doing is I wanted to write like a ghost story, essentially. Um, I wanted the the history, or part of the history of this house to be where there was an old woman called Eleanor Briggs who lived in the house, who legend has it was a witch and she used to sit on the the chair outside um, and observe the world below or she used to observe the children it was particularly children she preyed on um, she would observe the children um, from the town and use the chair uh, somehow to to lure them to the house it's almost like the typical wicked witch that you hear in fairy tales particularly like Hansel and Gretel that kind of thing those kind of yeah those kind of images went through my head I think the image the, the use of the old woman is something that keeps coming back to me I've not used it overly but it does have some relevance to me um, I've come to learn as I've got older that I I think I did um, suffer when I was younger with some form of sleep paralysis or um, particularly old hag syndrome and I particularly at times that I was I was ill I used to have these images when I was in my bedroom I'd struggle to get to sleep um, I would have an old woman in a rocking chair in the corner of my room and she was the typical sort of old crone really wrinkled really ugly long hooked nose sadistic smile on her face as she just literally stared in, stared through me as she rocked in her chair it was terrifying as a kid and it's really stuck with me and I, I want to use that more prominently in another story at some point um, but the, I think the, 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 the idea of using like an old woman um, who was like a witch was was what I wanted um, that thread of the story does still exist in the killing floor but the killing floor as I wrote it this then started to become organic it then morphed into something else um, so in a sense yes I, st- I, I got the idea of starting to write the story to fit in with a brief of some description but it did become my own story towards the end and what it turned out to be is a real sort of homage to I'd say sort of the typical, the, the classic horror films. Um, it, it follows the theme of a lot of the, like, what I would class as sort of teen travelling horror films, where you get a group of teens um, who go to a place or they stumble across a place, either with a history or one that they don't know, doesn't really matter, but they, they end up going to this place and end up unearthing some form of evil you know we see it like 
the one I think the clearest reference in this story probably is something like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre um, others that, that I, I love 2001 Maniacs if anyone out there is a big any kind of horror fan but particularly Robert Englund um, if you've not seen 2001 Maniacs you need to see that that's probably one my favourite film of his you know even including all the Nightmare on Elm Street um, and things like Wrong Turn so you've got a unwitting a group of unwitting teens or late teens think they're going somewhere to have fun you know they're, they're arrogant enough to think they can just waltz into somewhere um, and either make fun of it or just disrespect it I think you know their presence there a lot of the time is, is disrespectful um, so you've got a group of schoolgoers, college goers they're that kind of age sort of late teens um, it's the end of term they decide they want to do something to commemorate it so they all decide to go to the the old Courtney place as it's called now this is where I started to this is this is the identity I gave to the house it really comes to life in this story and it ties in then with Umidia because I reference in the story what happened in Umidia obviously Umidia is uh, is in the book as well so you'd already know what happened there but the idea is this is Ryan Courtney's house so after what happened to Ryan Courtney in Umidia um, the house then gets um, taken over by another family and it uh, I, I never touch on what happened but there is a hint of it at the end um, tragedy befalls the family and the house is um, set on fire so what remains of the Courtney house is, is like a shell it's still there um, but there's there's nothing it's, it's just the structure of it now um, and, and the image I had was it's a shell of a house but the stories are still there the life is still there the darkness is still there and um, one of the key characters in it is a guy called Phil Manson he's sort of almost the leader of the group but he, he, you can tell that he is sort of an outsider to them so he's, he's like a hanger on he's the one who knows the history of the house he's the one I think that suggested they go there um, and it all becomes apparent sort of what is lurking there there is there is something there still and unfortunately for this this group of of kids they um they discover what that is and uh yeah i i'm not going to not going to go into much more detail than that but it was really this this story was really the embodiment of um something that was meant to be current day the house has got a history it's got a dark past um you get kids who they almost get turned on by um, something creepy, you know. There, there's there's many people out there who who love the thought of of being scared. So for me, this this group, um, except for Phil, who who seems to have this affinity with the history of the house, he he's, he really has sort of a keen macabre interest in it. Um, but for the others, they're kind of there for the experience. But as it starts to turn a bit sour, you can tell that they really don't want to be there, and um, and that's where it starts from. They stay there. The plan is to stay there for the night, and things start happening in the night. It was still, 
even part way through sort of you could tell halfway through the story as I was still writing it I wasn't sure whether it was going to still be a ghost story I think I was still intending Eleanor Briggs to have um, a play in it somewhere but as it turns out it wasn't Eleanor Briggs that they had to be worried about um, and another way that, as well as the house the physically the house being Ryan Courtney's it is what I refer to as the Courtney place this is the house of Courtney literally it's the house uh, of Ryan Courtney and sort of there's there may be some history before that um, he was troubled some would say he was quite an evil person for what he did um, twisted I would say easily so there's got to be the thought that there is evil within this property maybe it's the house it's things like the Amityville horror kind of feeding into it as well is it the house that is transmitting the evil to those who are within it um, or does it go vice versa you know it's, it's up to uh, it's up to the readers to fit to um, decide that I think um, I wanted to link it to Umidio in another way by referencing the the events that take place in the killing floor um, were then known as the uh, the trapdoor murders or the trapdoor killer because I just think if you're in a property which is, is gutted or it's, it's a very creepy place for me I don't know why but one of the creepiest places to be within that house would be the kitchen because if it's got a history and you think bad things have happened you know the worst place they could have happened would be surely in a place where you know there's sharp instruments around or you know things like you know the kitchen for me for some reason it, it, again going back to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre I suppose it's it's that place where um, you know you can imagine some form of butchery to be happening happened in the media there were hints of it Ryan Courtney um, having this 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 basement sort of what he thought was a secret basement underneath the kitchen that is that is used again in the killing floor so this really is it's like a sequel to Amidia but without being directly carrying that story on it's, it's a different story within the same setting as she looked down she found a crack in the floor Carrie wouldn't have considered it unusual in a house in such a state as the Courtney place had it not been for one detail. The crack was not a crack at all, but formed the edge of a square structure, man-made, a wooden panel in the midst of a cold, crumbling cement floor. Yes, she could see it now. In the center of the square was a rusted brass handle. She gasped again, her heart beat faster, so loud that she could hear it above the ringing in her ears, which gave way to the whispers once more. This time, she recognized the voice. It was Phil's. The hatch in the floor was concealed during the light of day, but in the shadows, it was where she sent the children. Carrie stared, wanting to reach out and grab the handle. Would that be enough? Would just touching the handle, maybe pulling the latch door open and freeing nothing but stale air, satisfy herself that Phil's story was nothing but fiction conjured up by a drunken mind? She did not decide whether to open the door or not. She had no time before it burst open, a flash of white, stained black and red with dirt, grime and blood. 
sprang from underneath the hatch door. Two snake-like arms coiled around her as the body pushed itself out of the hole and pulled her down. So, there you go. So, 20-odd minutes of me rambling. That's probably the essence of House of Courtney um, as a release, is what I was aiming for at the time, is to have um, a few stories that were tied together by this house. My next challenge really came from, okay, so I've managed to tie in the killing floor and Umidia, uh, but how then do I make the Trick Jack story doesn't take place in the house? Um, it it ta mostly takes place in Spain, you know, it's not even in England. So how do I tie that one in? The, the way that I did that is to use the same character. Um, so the Trigger Jack isn't factored. Uh, he, he doesn't play a part in the killing floor directly. But Gareth Miles, the guy that he he's like the protagonist. He's the he's the the guy that Trigger Jack preys upon in the Trigger Jack story, the original. Um, he is one of this group who goes to the house. So yes, he does make it out. Um, and the the reason or what happens there sort of does um, shed a bit of light on the reason for why he is on the run at the beginning of the Trick or Jack and that's how I set up the running order of House of Courtney when I put it together is so I've done these episodes in chronological order when I wrote them but this is one of the, the great things I love about the writing process is that doesn't matter what order you write in you can you can put it together whatever order you want so um trick jack ended up being the last story in the house of courtney and uh killing floor precedes it so it follows on the the history the horrors within the house that ryan courtney once occupied and then progresses it to to show how the trick jack then becomes a part of that story i I didn't have a plan to then really tie the Tricker Jack in to the actual Courtney story that I was starting to build. Um, but that link would come with the following book, which I I won't discuss here because I've got another episode to come. Obviously, <clears throat> as each episode comes out, it will shed more light on how A Necessary End came together. And, and the other element of A Necessary End was the following the next release that I I, uh, I self-published which was Black Gang uh, A Tricker Jack Trail which is then where I it, it's like the origin story of the Tricker Jack and it shows his link to the Courtney's which it's, it's a lot more evident in the necessary end it was all become part of it's it mainly the Tricker Jack but it's, it's his relationship with the Courtney's and um those who have read both the original books or you've read A Necessary End, you will know um, how he is linked to that family. That is to come in the next episode. I'm going to start to talk about uh, Black Gang um, in the in the next few episodes. But I was really pleased. I mean, this was this was really an experimental kind of release. You know, the, the Killing Floor, like I say, was was not a story that came to me. Um, I sort of went to it, I suppose. Whereas Acolyte, Tricker Jack, Umidia, I just sat down with all these 
it's like a kaleidoscope really of, of ideas going off in my head and I had to try and write them down and then put them into a coherent order afterwards with the killing floor I started off really all I had was this chair this white chair that was on the that happened to be in the cover had I not picked that image the killing floor probably wouldn't have happened because I didn't have the it, at the time didn't have the inspiration to write a story like this um, it may have come later on because it's very much tied in as it developed it very much pulls on my love for again certain horror films that I've referenced already Texas Chainsaw Massacre um, 2001 Maniac's Wrong Turn that, that, that kind of vein of, of horror films uh, you know set in one place in a house in particularly um, I but yeah without that without my, my wife really giving me the nudge you know this element of the cover needs to have a story needs to have a part even if it's just it's just a little mention really in the killing floor but i think it's enough to kind of serve that if you were to read the book you could then look at that cover and and and, and realize recognize the the link the relevance of it i i didn't want to, i didn't like the idea of having a cover that really had no bearing or no relevance to what was inside um and i, I look at some book covers the is everyone says shouldn't judge a book by its cover I mean even as a writer I, I do I think the cover seeing the cover is what draws you to the story anyway and sometimes I pick books up and then I've looked at the cover and I go what, why did they pick that one and it's not that it's a bad cover it's not that it's a bad story it's just it makes you wonder why the author chose or the publisher chose that image um, because it doesn't seem to have a direct link to the story at all or not in an obvious way um, but I was really really proud of the look of House of Courtney so once I had this story once I had the killing floor that then linked the other two main stories together um, I could then develop really that, that backstory for the house that is all that narrative is for the house is, is just my way of introducing each story and again another way of linking them together as the book and having the house do the talking I think just kind of adds that character to the place itself I'm trying to hint that maybe the evil is existing within the house um, the structure itself so I think giving it the name and the image and that that feel um, that it has its own identity really um, achieved what I was setting out to do and I it wasn't a massive release you know it's a novella sized book or was a novella sized book um, it was the first time that I had gone out and I had put a book together myself you know not only written it but edited it formatted it um, you know got the cover designed and you learn a lot as you go along you know some of the there were mistakes made across uh, along the way I'm not by no means am I saying the House of Courtney was my um, strongest release particularly those that I've self-published at all it was the first one it's the one that I learned most from um, and it would then give way to when I self-published uh, the sewing season the second part of the world of apocalypse because I think I released House of Courtney in the February and then I released the sewing season only a couple of months after so 
over those few months I was really on a mission to learn as much as I could about putting a book together and self-publishing there is this stigma with authors who self-publish in that the content the quality um, by nature is, is going to be inferior I really I, I welcome that argument but I only because I think it, it does spur some really interesting debates but I I do not agree with that point at all I've got some uh, some author friends who have proven that uh, that that is not the case you know you can self-publish and you can put a book out provided you know what you're doing and you're willing to put the time the effort if you can and you know a certain amount of money into it you can produce something which is worthy of any other independent publisher um, fair enough the big big publishers like maybe you know the big five they put out think the the quality of, of theirs you know stands alone i would say still but there's so many independent publishers out there that are doing things which are which other authors are doing probably i would say just as well on their own so for me it's great as a writer these days because you you've got so many options to put um your own work out there you don't have to think if i if i can't get an agent i've got no hope of getting this book out there's so many ways and I think with things like Fiverr.com, really puts you in control, creative control of putting these books together yourself. And with How to Courtney, I, I, that's where I started my education in how to self-publish. So that's why I really, I still look at that book, still hold it in my hands, and I, I'm so proud of it. It's probably one of the one of my favourite releases. Um, I say it's one of the more, most organic. I keep saying that. The, the the stories that that I am most proud of are the ones that I've I've had to think about the least, and that's not saying that I I didn't want to put as much work into them. It's they're the most natural. They're the best reflection of me as a writer, uh, particularly my horror stuff, because you really have to. For me, I have to be in a certain place, a certain mood to write that so to come up with something like House of Courtney which I can even today I can put that in someone's hand and say if you want a glimpse of me as a writer um, or as a person even you know as a horror fan take this you know have a look because this this pretty much is you know heart on sleeve sort of thing um, and I did try and follow that through then with with Black Gang because Black Gang was um, it came out of something. It came out of nowhere. That one really, but because it came together so fluidly, I uh, I hold that in in sort of high esteem with myself as well. But no, no, House of Courtney is where I sort of cut my teeth, as they say in the self-publishing world. It was very basic. Looking back on it now, I've I've changed certain things I do, um, which makes hopefully what I put out a little more you know, a stronger. Uh, more professional looking but at the time you know you were on about it came out in the February I'd only been published for about seven months um, it wasn't even a year before that that I sent off Acolyte for the very first time to a publisher you know I a year before I released House of Courtney I had no idea um, or no belief that I would 
ever be published anyway you know it wasn't even on my radar probably a year before so so to be able to produce something that then I, I put out um, and people really responded to it it's not massive numbers again it's you know it, by by what I was expecting to sell I I would say this is probably one of the the more successful ones um, it was it wasn't a massive book people could pick it up and you know they could rattle through it in a couple of days if they wanted to um, didn't cost very much you know I priced it accordingly um, but not only that I think the, the, the cover drew people in the the descriptions of the stories but once they picked it up and then they realised what the stories were about the reviews I got were probably I would say amongst my favourite you know it got compared I, I had some great I met some great bloggers and other authors and reviewers along the way who I still sort of talk to now and you know a couple of them compared that book to you know recommending it for Stephen King fans and one of the best ones was comparing it to Clive Barker which you know this is the guy who came up with Hellraiser and that um, that gritty 80s horror body horror really was was to be compared to someone in that realm was um, was was a massive boost for me uh, because that that really was what I was aiming for I think with a lot of this with some of the scenes in Trick or Jack particularly the killing floor is, is 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 really a big nod to the 70s and 80s classic gritty horror films um, and it, you know Umidia I, I watched um, I watched I said I was going to do it in the last episode I watched the B movie A Tarantula um, the other day I absolutely love that film because it's I'll probably do a whole other episode on this so I won't talk about it too much but um, but it's just it's the simplicity of it I mean it was it, the effects what they were doing is actually using proper footage of an actual spider and so basically just blowing it up against the, the scenery um, that is probably creepier than watching something like Eight-Legged Freaks where you know everything is CGI um, you know the movements of the spider in Tarantula are actually a real spider um, and I think that's the simple use of music in the movies you know not just saturating it in effects and background noise you know soundtrack or whatever I think what they did back in the 50s they used it when they needed to and that's really I think that's part of the art that is lost these days um, in horror cinema I think it really is saturated um, they go for shock value more than anything else and I, I, it's it's not the same and that's just me I mean that's that's what I prefer um, that's really what House of Courtney as a book was tried to achieve it was it was sort of the reflection of my love for that era of horror so um, so yeah hopefully hopefully there's many of you out there that would would see that without having to listen to the podcast but even if you haven't read it um, that you you would get a, an indication of of why I wrote it and what I was aiming for and uh, yeah so uh, so that was that really that was that was House of Courtney and um, I was fortunate enough as well that it's I was really fortunate as well that it was it got noticed by a local production group um, Circle of Spears who I was 
I I did when I had the time. I used to join in on Twitter on a Monday night on the uh, the Devon Book Club. Uh, for any locals listening to this, you sniff out the Devon Book Club. Ian Hobbs put together the Devon Book Club. I'm not sh- I'm not too sure sort of how long ago, but I've I've sort of been uh, keeping keeping up with them, been part of them, you know, in, in a distant way for since I started. But um, it's a, it's a great group for local authors, you know, for even readers, local readers to get to know local authors, you know, doing book reviews. It's fantastic. They used to do a um, uh, like a, a one hour chat on a Monday night and I used to sort of dip in and out of that when I could and one night I just meant, uh, I just noticed that Mark Norman who is part of Circle of Spears Productions and a local author and folklorist um, he just mentioned that he was reading House of Courtney and I was so touched that you know somebody had discovered my book um, without me putting it you know, in the hands, of, you know, under their nose myself, they they discovered my book and they 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 were compelled to comment on it, and um, and that was where we got talking from then. And um, I worked with Circle of Spheres for um, from the initial audio book production of House of Courtney, um, which obviously I, I have updated with Dave Jackson in unnecessary end um recently but um, they did the original audiobook of of house of courtney which was fantastic and it really this is where that door was open to me you know without house of courtney yeah my work may not have been noticed by them at that point um and i i was really um i was really flattered that someone of mark's talents you know noticed my work and was willing to talk about it um, on a platform like that so so yeah this this really was the one where I started you could say that House of Courtney is the one that helped start my networking you know within the within the writer world particularly locally with the Devon authors so uh, so yeah if you are um, if you're intrigued enough again like I say in any of these you can pick up a copy of A Necessary End or if you've read House of Courtney, if you if you're one of those who've got a copy of House of Courtney, you know, let me know what you think of it. Still, you know, does it still hold up? It's only, I think, four years after its release. Um, you know, what do you still think of it? You know, do you do you, have you read it again? Do you talk about it to people? You know, is it something you would recommend? Um, if you haven't, then a necessary end is available on Amazon in all formats including new audiobook format so follow me really through as I'm doing this podcast follow me with the book you know or you know if even if you read the book and you want to find out more continue listening to this podcast because I've I've reached the point now this is sort of kind of like the halfway point um in looking at a necessary end this was the first part of it that went into it but there's still a lot to tell um, as I go on to the next release which was Black Gang A Tricky Jack Trail which I wrote the following year I think it was 2017 um, I first wrote it um, you'll see how how I was trying to then tie in um, a lot of elements I was I was trying to tell the, the Tricky Jack's backstory but also as you'll see and hear towards the end of that book I was even trying to tie it into the other side of my writing universe i was trying to make them all just one big tapestry um 
whether it worked or not, I'm not sure. But uh, I'll let the, the readers be the judge of that. But um, yeah, there's still a lot more to tell. So still continue to to follow the podcast, please, if you are enjoying it. Um, and, you know, follow the podcast, subscribe, whatever it is that you need to do on the platform you're listening to it. Tell your friends. Um, because this is, this is just, this is great for me um, to be able to talk about what has gone into my work and, and, and how it's developed. I'm hoping if there's writers out there listening to it, even if I, you know, my experience, um, anything you can pick up from it, you know, take any kind of inspiration or advice from it, um, that's fantastic for me as well. You know, so uh, so thank you for listening. Um, check out the audiobook, check out the books. Follow me on uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, you know, send me messages, comment on the episodes, and let me know you know what you're thinking let me know if you've got any ideas coming up of any future shows as well because uh, once uh, once i've dissected the necessary end um, i've got a really open floor as to where i then take the podcast so uh, i'll be interested to know what you uh, what you would like really for the podcast after that but thank you for joining me this week and um, i will speak to you again next time she had started to awaken perfect just how he wanted her to be so that she could witness her death as she is feasted upon by one of mankind's most glorious creations. Another rasp came from the girl's mouth as she desperately tried to form words through her lipless mouth. Thankfully for Faye, her mind had already started to die, driven mad by the pain. She had willed death more times than she could remember while strapped on that bed trying to block out the vision of the grotesque man carving at her body. He was no man. He was a monster in the purest sense of the word. A beast. The sound samples used in this episode are from the audiobook version of A Necessary End, narrated by Dave Jackson, and is available for download on Audible and Amazon. If you like what you hear, and if you've enjoyed this episode, please do check out the audiobook as well as the ebook and paperback copies of A Necessary End, also available through Amazon and all good bookstores online. <laughs> oh my.